On behalf of Palo Alto Networks and Kerasoft, we would like to welcome you to today's podcast, focused around the future of cybersecure schools, handling threats to K-12 online student safety, data, and compliance, where Greg Herbold, Director of State and Local Government and Education at Palo Alto Networks, will discuss the top threats to K-12 schools and traditional and remote learning models. We have a really uh, interesting topic for us to go through today. It's a topic that um, we've been talking about at Palo Alto Networks for quite some time, but uh, obviously it has changed in the recent uh, climate of uh, children not being at school, being at home. For example, you'll probably hear some clarinet soon because my son has his recital today, and here we are all in the same house. Um, but alas, that is our, uh, our new disposition with all of this. We, um, so my name is Greg Herbold, and I'm with Palo Alto Networks. I'm our Director of Programs uh, for Government and Education. So I'm thrilled to get to share with you some of the thoughts we have about uh, K-12 uh, cybersecurity and online safety in particular. And we're going to talk about that from the standpoint of just the pure straight up topics of what are the key risks, the top five things that we see over and over again, and what can you do about those things from both a policy and a technology standpoint. We're also going to talk about what that looks like in an environment um, dominated by remote access. So our focus is today is going to be on education, but we will also kind of extrapolate from this. If you're not with a K-12 school, um, these perspectives actually all still have bearing um, in, in many, many environments. So with that, let's dig in. To set the foundation, uh, the, there's a lot of different things, obviously, that K-12 districts uh, pay attention to from a cybersecurity standpoint. Some of these are regulated. Some of these are just good sense, um, and, and our obligation to the children and the parents that participate in our school systems. The, um, so protecting students from inappropriate content. So SIPA compliance, right? Um, whether that's on premise or on the devices that are sent home. Safely getting to cloud. So many of our applications like Office 365 and Google Classroom and so much of the student information systems is now in living in a cloud-based environment. How are we doing that safely, right? Getting visibility, just keeping control over what online activities students are doing. And uh, whether that's on the campus or, or coming from home, um, the visibility in an environment where there's so much happening um, can be challenging. And obviously, we all know the discrete threats, right? The ransomware, the malware, the exploits. How do you tackle all these things in a holistic way? And then the new wrinkle, right, that's uh, been thrown into our lives since uh, February, March, is how do we quickly scale up to doing this with hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of devices um, in a way that doesn't overtax the uh, physical systems that we have in place um, on the premises and in our environment. That's where David's gonna come into at the end. So, um, so that's the foundation. What we're gonna do is start with the top five threats um, that we see in the K-12 environment, the things that we work with our customers in K-12 on repeatedly and share with you some of what goes into these and, um, and what are the technology and policy uh, approaches that we recommend based on our experience with them. So the top five, drum roll pre, please, is uh, phishing, right? Which is uh, typically the number one. We're gonna do a poll in a few seconds here and we're gonna find out if it's your number one. Um, internal misuse of data. This doesn't mean it's witting, by the way. Sometimes this is unwitting misuse of data. Um, that uh, happens at the hands of faculty and administration and students. There's a robust debate about who more frequently misuses data, the administration, the faculty, or the students. But uh, that's certainly an issue. The fact that more computers is great, it mean, and certainly in this environment um, of the pandemic, more devices is essential. 
but it does make monitoring more difficult. We'll talk about that to some length. Cyberbullying, always a concern um, at school. It's, it compromises school safety. It's a, um, partly a, a cybersecurity challenge. It certainly um, you know, has policy ramifications that go well beyond the technology approach. Um, and then encryption is more and more frequent and common. And it's something that uh, we all have to be particularly careful with. Um, and this is a place where policy and, and technology certainly meet um, and leads to robust debate. So those are the five we're going to go through. Before we start, I'm going to kick it over and we're going to do a quick poll. Um, and this is partly so that you can uh, stay engaged and give us your opinions. And uh, partly because I'm curious what your answers are going to be. Um, so the question is, and you should have a, a poll box that has popped up in your screen, but uh, which of these threats to student safety are you most concerned about? You can just log in your answer there. This will also help me determine how much time we spend on each one. <laughs> this will map to your interests. Interesting. So as the numbers come in, if you, I don't know if you on your screen can see the numbers, uh, uh, but the it's phishing usually is the number one answer. Uh, I'm definitely seeing the monitoring all the computers and devices, uh, you know, popping up here, um, and obviously um, the data about phishing and its prominence might be a little bit dated in this current climate of remote access. Uh, so number three here might be popping. But those are the number one and number two answers, it looks like, is, is phishing and, and monitoring of devices, which isn't all that surprising. But there's certainly coverage across the board on this. So I'm going to figure out how I can get this poll out of my... Okay, good. So we got the poll that's over on the side now if you want to look back at those results. We'll have two more of those through the session today. Um, but with that as context, let's dig into the number one. So phishing... Phishing is important for us to pay attention to for a number of different reasons. Um, obviously, there's a number of risks that flow out of it. For example, it is the main vector for ransomware into K-12 environments. There have been many published stories um, you know, you know, across the United States uh, where K-12 schools have been victimized by ransomware, and, and phishing is usually uh, the vector associated with that. Um, ed tech leaders say it is the most um, significant threat that they face. And um, as an industry, this is, this is interesting, education sector clicks on more links than any uh, other industry. So it's something that, you know, it's probably a function of who's in our user base and how big our user base is and what a challenge the training can be. Uh, but it's a particularly thorny problem in education. You'll see the, uh, the phony newspapers, but the actual news clips, um, you know, of some places where this has gone horribly wrong, right? Access of student records. Um, that is unknown for quite some period of time. Um, students, uh, you know, causing havoc, phishing their teachers for passwords, changing grades. You probably all have your own little story in mind about uh, where this has created a negative impact. Hopefully it's a story about one of your friends and not one of you. But even if it is, this is a topic that uh, we can really make a dent in. So I want to flip and talk about some of the policy and the technology considerations of this. From a policy standpoint, one of the things that we see consistently um, as beneficial uh, is, is the, uh, the training that can go into this, training your staff on the technology, setting up processes for reporting suspicious emails. Um, I live in Northern Virginia. I know all of you are uh, primarily in Michigan, but um, in, in Virginia, I used to spend time with uh, Dave Jordan, who is the, uh, 
was the CISO in Arlington County and was listening to him describe how he built technologies in so that um, any of the employees that were receiving internal emails immediately had a box on any email that they got that if it looked suspicious at all, they could click that, uh, that box and it would shoot over to them. Many of you probably have similar technologies in place. It's an important policy thing to make available to people. And then also fish testing. Um, we, you know, Palo Alto Networks, um, I receive these test emails. I've got a pretty good track record on these, <laughs> but uh, we get them on a monthly basis, it seems, uh, just to keep our skills sharp, to keep us conscious of the need to pay attention uh, to what those links are pointing to. And if we don't know, to be cautious and careful about what we're clicking and to look for some of the signs. So those are great approaches from a policy standpoint. There are also technology considerations that you can bring to bear. Um, one of the most basic is, is multi-factor authentication, right? So that um, when someone does get hold of credentials, that they've got that second prove it moment um, that can protect you. Um, so that's an obvious uh, play. The other thing that can work very effectively, it's actually a combination of two technologies, but blocking certain usernames and passwords from being transmitted to illegitimate websites. So if you're using a next generation firewall, for example, um, and there's a user ID uh, capability where you identify who your users are and what their credentials are, and there's a URL filtering capability, you can tie those two things together um, and have the system automatically preventing the transfer of credentials um, to certain known bad sites um, so that you can protect yourself in a secondary way um, there. So that's very, very effective for people. What we'll talk about as we go through the session today, and you'll see towards the end, is just all the different places you can apply this. You can do this on a next generation firewall. You can also do this on cloud-based systems. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that in the second half of the, the slides today. So that's phishing. Um, and if you have questions, by the way, I will just remind you that you can put them into the Q&A box, which on my screen is on the left-hand side. On your screen, it may differ. But in that Q&A box, we've got a couple of people that uh, will be monitoring those through the session. Um, if I see a question pop up that's relevant to a particular topic, like phishing, which we just talked about, I'll uh, we'll try to answer them in context as we'll go through, but we'll certainly sweep through them at the end and tackle your questions. So don't be shy about that uh, Q&A box. So the second one is internal misuse. And, um, you know, there's, you see in quotes, the term miscellaneous errors. Um, and so it's not really intentional um, in many cases, um, but it is, in fact, internal misuse and often unwitting. And it's usually the cause of the initiation point for many, many data breaches. Um, and in fact, miscellaneous errors calculate, you know, are, are accounting for about 35% of education data breaches last year. You'll see on the chalkboard there that, um, you know, this can lead to all kinds of problems. There have been cases where school districts get sued after student information um, that, you know, gets leaked and gets posted. Um, there's a, a lot of cost associated with the remediation of these breaches. Um, and, uh, you know, if you give students erroneously administrative privileges, for example, uh, then you've got a real issue in terms of, uh, you know, privacy uh, that uh, you'll have to take up with your communities. So it's very important that we think about this internal misuse and just what are the techniques that we can put in place? Because this isn't just stopping bad guys who are doing it intentionally. Sometimes this is, uh, you know, completely unintentional on the part of the user. From a policy standpoint, the discussions we typically get to or, and see our customers embrace are around the safe and the ethical and the appropriate digital behavior. So having a policy um, that uh, documents what those things are and having training around those things. But also um, you know, being able to recognize what are the threats, right? And having people report some of those threats. 
right? And so that if you see, um, you know, things in your environment, having people not just let it idly go by, but having them communicate them. There's a longer list of technology approaches here. This is a place where um, we have a, a really strong skill set and where there are many tools available to you um, to help address this. The first is to embrace the concept of zero trust. Now, we could legitimately spend our entire hour today talking about zero trust and what that is and how you deploy that. Um, the concept is fairly simple if you're not familiar with it. It's that uh, we don't trust anyone, right? We don't just let people in the front door and then they get free reign of the house, right? The model would be essentially if you continue that metaphor, right? Every room you go into, you've got to recredential yourself as being able to get into that room once you're in that front door, right? And so you're always verifying people's ability to access certain things. What it means is having a good system that allows you to have visibility to users, visibility to the applications, and visibility to the content that flows between those two things, and set policies around um, how those three things can interact. That's the most foundational stuff. And then it builds from there. But again, we won't drain the swamp on zero trust today. But if you're unfamiliar with that, or even if you are, it's worth thinking about what role it can play and are you effectively deploying it um, to make sure that you are uh, preventing misuse of information in your environment. You can also take an approach of scanning for sensitive data that's leaving the network boundaries, such as social security numbers or credit cards, particularly with the amount of SaaS tools that K-12 is using these days. Uh, it's important to uh, have a system that is scanning for that stuff and just looking for um, you know, number sequences and patterns um, or sensitive information and keeping control over that so that you know when data that's supposed to stay in bucket A um, gets moved over into bucket B. Um, and that visibility makes all the difference in terms of being able to prevent it, right? There's also um, the element of being able to block certain categories of URLs, right? So that people aren't taking, you know, information from, you know, not just out to sanctioned SaaS environments, but that people aren't pushing your important information out to unsanctioned environments and people would block those. So URL filtering can absolutely help there. Um, and you certainly have to think about um, the role that, uh, you know, decryption can play. We're going to talk about decryption in a minute. Um, but certainly blocking actions, right? If there are people who really shouldn't legitimately be uploading um, to file sharing sites, right? Being able to block that and make sure that that's only happening for the folks where that makes sense in your data segmentation model. So a lot of these technologies, um, as with phishing, are um, available on next generation firewalls. They're also available in cloud-based solutions and those SaaS-based tools are, are easy uh, subscriptions to integrate in. But we're not gonna go through a lot of product today. Today we're primarily gonna talk about principles. So, so that's internal misuse. So let's go to the one that was second on your ranking, um, which was the monitoring of computers and devices. So it used to be uh, that for, uh, well, for the decade almost, we've been talking about this concept of one-to-one -one computing. And it was an aspiration. Uh, many people achieved it. Some took a BYOD approach. Um, in some cases, it was student-owned devices. There's a whole history of just, you know, the movement from laptops into Chromebooks, for example, or lighter formats, um, even tablets. You know, what is the device that makes sense for a given grade level? A lot of that discussion has been replaced with the really blunt um, necessity of just getting students capable to uh, continue in an educational posture um, during this period of time when everybody is at home. And so this has become a very front and center topic. We saw that in the survey results, even though we had a small sample size there, um, it's, it's rising in its importance to folks. Um, and the uh, necessity of being able to do right 
by our requirements. And there's a number of things that come into play here. This could be FERPA, this could be COPPA, this could be SIPA, right? The, you know, I'll throw in your favorite acronym. Um, but there's a regulatory push behind this, but there's also just a common sense and a, and a goodwill aspect of this too, is that knowing that because these devices give access to anything, what can we do to control? Um, you know, I put some of the, that's the uh, forbidden forest from Harry Potter, if you're wondering about the graphic. <laughs> so what are those forbidden forest items that uh, can get students uh, or get teachers um, into trouble and create issues for the district? Tackling this issue is uh, potentially very complex. Um, it does put a heavy weight on policy, and this is a place where acceptable use policies really become front and center and making sure that those policies handle a bunch of different things, the different users, right? That can be staff, that could be students, that could be high school students having a different policy than grade school students, certainly different devices. And, and the primary strata there are the school-owned devices versus the student-owned devices from the standpoint of your district. Um, or, uh, you know, if, if you're not even in a district, right, but you're, let's say, in a government agency, thinking about your user base there, and how are you segmenting that and which folks are going to have um, ability to do which things from where on which devices? Is there certain data that should only go on, um, you know, an agency owned device, for example? So um, these, these can be complex, right? So that, that, that user versus device versus location, um, there's a lot of different uh, combinations of those variables that can lead you to different policy approaches. And obviously the answer can be different district by district as to what those policies are, right? And then uh, the key points on the bottom here, uh, we shouldn't skip over, which is what is the policy about monitoring? And we're gonna talk about this at the end when we talk about encryption. Um, and what is the expectation of privacy um, that a student has? Um, and particularly that, you know, school-owned devices versus BYOD, there's a robust debate about what should the expectation of privacy be if you use a student-owned device um, to do school-based work, and how does that differ? So um, Palo Alto Networks isn't the business of selling policy, all right? Uh, but we certainly need to call out that your technology decisions that you make and how you apply the technology to this should be driven by policy. Um, you know, the technology can accommodate all of the different policy scenarios on the, the left-hand box here, um, but it takes, a, a, it takes uh, some finesse with a couple of different tools. It obviously starts um, with a robust foundation of URL filtering. Now, URL filtering is also a topic that we could spend um, a whole load of time on. Hundreds and millions of websites, right? 75 URL categories, right? So um, drug sites, hacking sites, adult sites, all of these are relevant to SIPA compliance, right? We also can categorize URLs by risk level um, and uh, whether they're hosted on dynamic DNS platforms, Right? This gives you the ability to block high-risk stuff, right? inappropriate websites, enforcing safe search and making sure that that's turned on, forcing restricted YouTube access to only the stuff that um, your educators believe is appropriate for the students to be consuming uh, and in the classroom or, or at home in a classroom setting, creating alerts, right? performing actions based on keyword searches. So if you see you know, certain things being searched on, you've got the ability to have those red flags so that... Uh, you know, if there's any safety, physical safety issues um, or, you know, bullying, we'll talk about it next. But uh, those considerations can all come out through this filtering. Um, and it can also help you with uh, just the uh, 
common evasion tactics, right? It's cache results, language translation, things like that. So the it's, it's very important to focus on URL filtering. But I will say this, and we'll recap this again. This point's going to be repeated later. Um, URL filtering is really not sufficient in here. Um, that might get you to CIPA compliance. That might let you, you know, submit your E-rate forms and say, see, I have documented URL filtering, therefore I'm good to go. It's our recommendation that you exceed CIPA requirements and that you also move beyond URL filtering to enforce your acceptable use policies with granular security policies that take these things into account. That user group and device and application mix and who can access what from where, whether or not you're going to decrypt and, uh, and be monitoring what's in there that rolls into this, and then other parameters like location and time of day. And certainly within all of this, um, you need to be making sure that these devices have a robust set of threat preventions right, to uh, block the known bad stuff um, that can affect those machines and then work their way into your environment, but also to deal with the unknowns. Um, so we'll come back to that and spend a little more time there. So this is a robust area. I'm not surprised it was your, in your top two, uh, but it is an area that, uh, as we'll hear at the end, uh, when we hear from David Dennis, it's a place where you can get a good amount of help uh, to support around this. We, for example, at Palo Alto Networks, we pushed out um, what we call an iron skillet. I won't get into the fancy marketing reasons why we call it an iron skillet. It hardens your pan and a pan is a firewall, but uh, so iron skillet. But the, uh, it's a set of uh, day one configurations that can help you um, tie out to, uh, to get 90% there and then make the adjustments you need to match to your uh, acceptable use policy. So that should make your lives a little bit easier. But this is a, a very important topic and one that deserves, obviously, a lot of attention. The fourth area is cyberbullying. And uh, most schools have a bullying policy in place. And there, uh, sometimes that's state requirement and law that puts that um, into the requirement set. But sometimes that's just good policy um, around the school. You'll see that there are, you know, in the headline there, um, this is something that can lead to um, legal issues uh, for a district if, uh, if not dealt with. I'm contended with, but it is something that obviously has a large amount of policy and there's a technology play um, that can work here. Um, it's one of the things that uh, policy-wise, the awareness programs um, that promote appropriate digital usage, um, you know, include cyberbullying in uh, your acceptable use policy for sure. It's not on the slide, but one of the things that um, is worth considering is what cybersecurity education are you putting into your youngest grade level? So if you're in a school that has, you know, K through eight, um, you know, age group, for example, uh, just having training classes on what is acceptable use and starting at a young age um, to train people on what are these technologies? What is your sense of identity online and how does that differ from your sense of identity in the real world? Um, and how do you keep control of that? And, you know, these tenets of acceptable behavior often come, come out in curriculum. We have a set of um, exercises, I should have put a slide in on it, but we can certainly get information to you if you're interested, um, is that we have a cyber activities uh, you know, uh, for education. Uh, it's a free set of curriculum and activities that teachers can deploy. They're chunked by age um, so that you get age appropriate content that, that trains up on some of these skills. So the policy, the educational aspects here in cyberbullying are super important. There are technology plays, obviously, uh, requiring students to use an always-on VPN, right, so that you've got, um, you know, secure tunneling in and you've got some visibility to the things that are happening um, and that it's uh, not just some other form of decryption that's keeping you from seeing what they're doing. The decryption conversation certainly comes into play here. But um, monitoring and possibly blocking high-risk functions, right, controlling 
when chat and video um, are available in sensitive applications. And uh, there's certainly been uh, a number of discussions around Zoom and other technologies that are, are new in many of our education environments. You know, what are the policies around those that we can use to help prevent cyberbullying? Decryption is the fifth. I don't know what your number is. I should, if I were smart, which I'm not, I would have put a polling question in about what percent of your traffic are you seeing um, as encrypted at this point. The stats that we hear, we're hearing numbers um, of a between 70 and 95% of web traffic um, is now encrypted, right? That can hide threats from you, right? That can hide cyberbullying from you. That can hide all kinds of things from you, right? Um, you know, and it's interesting because malware, malware attacks in education overall are down, but the encrypted attacks um, are up, right? And so for you, deciding what traffic to decrypt is, um, is challenging. Um, it goes back to that privacy discussion. So we've, we've mentioned this before. Um, and obviously you have to stay on top of this because there are new sites that are cropping up um, daily and um, not every uh, well filtering product is going to decrypt all of those sites for you. So it's one of those areas where URL filtering is um, essential but insufficient uh, for some of these tasks. So encryption is absolutely um, a policy discussion that you need to be having. Um, it does involve privacy. It probably involves your, your attorneys um, around the legal and the regulatory and, and other um, policy-based things that the school wants to do. Um, Technology-wise, decryption is really not that big of a challenge for us. It's easy to deploy on a, a next-generation firewall. It's easy to deploy in a cloud-based firewall posture, um, and uh, that can allow you to inspect uh, the content in questionable categories. It also gives you a pretty granular level of control, right? It's not just a binary on-off, am I decrypting or not, right? You can certainly be decrypting uh, traffic for certain sites as opposed to others, right? You can choose not to decrypt traffic that's coming in from any sort of banking or healthcare um, you know, environment if you determine that that's just too much of a privacy uh, challenge for you. So um, just, you know, decryption is a topic that if you haven't delved into it, um, it gives you a tremendous amount of uh, improved visibility. Um, it also gives you the control that you need to match a policy um, around what are the kinds of traffics that it's rightful for you to expect, inspect from a privacy standpoint. So, so those are the five topics. Um, before we transition, um, and again, I'll remind you of the Q&A window. So if you have questions about any of these topics, I'd be happy to tackle them. We do have an engineer and our, our local rep on the phone so that they can talk to you about some of the practical considerations if you have a more technical question than what I've asked. But uh, before we jump into the next piece, which is how does this all change in a world of remote access, we have our next poll question, um, which is around um, as you are planning for the fall, um, what is the what are you planning for, right? What percent of your students and faculty are you expecting to have to accommodate with remote access? Right. Whether you plan to try to have them back on campus or not, um, you know, and back in the school buildings or whether there's already some awareness of what those approaches might be. But what are you planning for in terms of what load of traffic you'll have to accommodate um, in a remote posture? So we'll just give a moment for these answers to roll in. Small sample size so far, but the 50 to 75 percent bucket is, uh, is in the lead. We'll give about five more seconds. Okay, so it looks like the winner um, is uh, about 50 to 75%. 
uh, followed closely by 75 to 99. So more than half. Um, I think if I go back up to the top, only one of you said less than 50%. Um, it's interesting if we look at the stats around this about where people were, uh, people were planning for less than 50%. You know, if you go back to a year ago and the discussions we were having a year ago, and now these are the kinds of numbers that we're being asked to help uh, school districts embrace, which is um, a much larger uh, percentage. And whether that's a continuous, ongoing, um, you know, consistently having more than half of uh, students and faculty logging in remotely as opposed to from the campus, or if that's uh, just an emergency uh, burst capability. We certainly need a more robust remote access uh, foundation than we've had. All right, so let's set that poll to the side um, and uh, let's dig into part two. So it's an education webinar, so you'll see the Shakespeare reference there. You've probably all seen the Globe Theater and London might close, but uh, beware the Ides of March. Do you all remember March? It seems like a long time ago. Um, but when we all started to see, you know, state by state decisions being made to close schools and the tens and hundreds of thousands of um, schools and millions and tens of millions of students, um, you know, now working remotely. Obviously, a big question that we faced was how do we continue with our educational mission? And then for those of us involved in cybersecurity, how do we continue in that education mission while we're still protecting students? And that is essential. And so um, as a result, uh, we all started to think about is our network and is our firewall, that hardware and bandwidth sufficient to securely meet the new remote access demand that we have, right? Can we get enough people in, you know, have their VPN connections uh, terminating off our environment and keep that all secure? So for some of you, the answer may have been yes. Uh, if the answer was no, and if the answer is still no, you really don't need to worry, right? There are techniques and you can extrapolate all of the functionality from physical firewalls on your premises into the cloud to keep students safe. And what we wanted to do in the second part of the presentation here is talk about what some of these newer remote access models look like, how they keep your surge of remote internet traffic from pounding your network harder than you can handle, how you can deploy it pretty fast, but most importantly, how you can do it with the same security, uh, the consistent security to what you do on your firewalls so that you're not driving yourself crazy now having to maintain two different approaches to security across two different uh, modalities. And that's a really important thing, uh, particularly because there's probably some uncertainty on each of your minds about budgetarily, what are things gonna look like for um, the next school year and what resources will be available to you to accommodate these things. So efficiency certainly should be part of these discussions. So I want to start with just a little, you know, history of where we've been as an industry, because we've all done a really good job of accommodating remote access for a certain um, portion of our users, but a smaller portion than certainly needs remote access today. But most of our current situation is centered around a model where our mobile users, you know, fire into our data center, hit a firewall. From there, they can either reach apps that are in the data center or they can then move out to the Internet and get to um, any uh, public cloud or SaaS or any internet-based resources that they need. And this has always been sufficient for us um, to backhaul this information through, this traffic, I should say, through the data center. The challenge in our current environment, though, um, based on those numbers that you all plugged in in the survey, is that there can be some finite scalability factors on this, right? Can you really add hardware at the scale of cloud or SaaS or BYOD? and scale as fast as the, the large number sets that we're working with here. There's also deployment challenges, right? Those can be procurement based. Those can be manual hardware implementations at this point, 
right? And, and connectivity and location challenges, right? Some folks make the decision to think about like split tunneling and that creates security gaps, right? And uh, so there's challenges there. And then there's a user experience aspect of if you've got all these customers moving over that environment at the same time, you might not have the capacity to route all that traffic um, you know, through your environment um, you know, in a way that pr protects the user experience that's needed to effectively deliver um, distance learning. Um, so this is a, a complex scenario that we're dealing with. And again, for some, there'll be sufficiency, but for many, uh, what we have found is that this is a challenge. And so the model that we have uh, uh, deployed, we call it Prisma Access. So Prisma is just our brand around it. So just focus on the access word. Right, is that scalable remote access for mobile users? We think there's a better model, and that's what we've built. And um, so, if you look at the difference in the graphic on the right, no longer is all of the traffic going back to the firewall um, for that decision about does it stay within the data center and there, or go out to the internet. Um, there's now an extrapolated firewall uh, for you know just to describe it broadly. Uh, we call it Prisma Access, but it's a it's a point of presence where your users can log in and we can apply all of those same consistent security functions. I mentioned the importance of app ID and user ID and content ID combined with URL filtering, right? And uh, Wildfire is our uh, sandbox for discovering unknown threats, right? There's uh, data loss prevention. There's all kinds of things that you can do um, in a firewall extrapolated up into the cloud that uh, is very consistent and managed with the same tools um, that you do on a physical firewall. The beauty of this model, if you follow the traffic, is that not everything has to go back to your data center. If it's traffic that's destined for the public cloud or SaaS or the internet, um, you can get all the same security applied to it, but have that traffic go right out to the internet, not have to pass through your data center. If the stuff that needs to be accessed is in the data center, it'll certainly get routed there. Um, so all this takes is uh, uh, you know, a quick setup of an IPsec tunnel between um, this, uh, this pop in the cloud and your data center and you've got some really unique ability um, to scale, right? And because this is cloud-based, it dynamically scales up and down. This isn't just a shell game where we're just loading hardware into someone else's data center. Um, it's, it's truly cloud-based and uh, it scales at the, uh, the rate of the ISPs, um, so the big cloud providers uh, where we have these points of presence um, deployed. So that makes it very, very flexible for you as well. It's also something that you can deploy quickly, right? You don't necessarily need to get into your uh, data center. You can run these tools remotely um, and, uh, and therefore do it a little more safely. Now, global reach is less important in the K-12 business, right? I don't think many of you have um, lots of students overseas or a need to bounce your traffic around the world, um, but for those that do, it's there. It's usually more relevant for higher education where they've got campuses overseas and certainly you know, for our enterprise and commercial customers um, that have that global presence. Um, but uh, it's important to know that we got you covered wherever um, you need your traffic to flow. As I mentioned, though, the really important thing here is the consistency of the security. So I talked about URL filtering, right? I described it as essential, but not sufficient. Um, the, the same ways you deploy URL filtering on your physical firewall, you can deploy in Prisma Access. And so all that traffic that uh, doesn't hit your data center but stays up in uh, the, the cloud um, gets all of those same security applications for URL filtering. You can quickly deploy that and enforce that. It gives you those granular controls to allow you to uh, block users and groups and apps based on an exception-based model. You can combine it with application ID uh, for additional controls. So allow one app for, um, you know, but not another uh, for a given individual user. 
This gives you the ability to certainly give clean access to all your corporate permitted sites, right? If there are user permitted sites, you can allow those, but all the things that you need to forbid access to, um, you can forbid access to, and that's important from a, from a compliance and a responsibility standpoint. But I said it's not sufficient, right? And here's what I mean by that, is that you also need to be able to see the threats, right? Um, you look around the industry, you'll see a lot of the pure play URL filters are now in the business of pairing up with um, you know, threat uh, intelligence uh, providers. And that's natural. We do that automatically, right? And uh, as you'll hear from David at the end, all of this is available through, uh, through the Merit Marketplace as well. But doing the threat prevention to be able to block the known malware and the vulnerability of exploits and all of the command and control activity. Um, you know, it's one clean approach, the same clean approach we use in our firewalls gets used up in Prisma Access so that um, you know, when you see a threat match um, based on the intelligence that we already have, that uh, it, it blocks that and prevents that from damaging your environment. And because it's all cloud-based and because it's all tied back into um, the same threat intelligence in the cloud, something you see on a device creates protections that end up getting deployed on your firewall back in the data center in the environment. And all those things get pushed out across our broader community so that if we see something in one school, we create those protections and five minutes later, gets pushed down. That's the beauty of wildfire, right? And so, um, and you know, wildfire is just our brand name for the sandbox, but wildfire uses all kinds of techniques. You'll see some of them listed on these blue circles, um, static analysis, dynamic analysis, all the machine learning. We have uh, trillions and trillions of artifacts in our environment that we use to, that are the result of this wildfire process of us blowing things up seeing what happens, building the correct protections, and, uh, and then creating uh, the intelligence that we push back out to our machines so that we can detect those things so that effectively the unknown becomes known and gets dealt with instantaneously across all of the customers who use wildfire. And those same protections push down to Prisma Access as they do out to our, uh, our physical and our virtual firewalls. So this gives you good confidence that uh, even as you let your traffic to the internet, just go straight out to the internet and not have to pass through your environment, it's getting all the same protections that would have received from a security standpoint as if you had passed it. And that's one of the key things that we wanted to make sure that we brought home from a messaging standpoint today, is that the challenge of addressing um, these top five threats in the K-12 posture is, um, is entirely manageable um, with the same consistent security, that the security challenge of removing, moving to remote access doesn't have to be any more challenging than what you're doing in your uh, in your data center with your physical next generation firewalls. The other challenge though is, okay, great, Greg, but how do I deploy it? Try to make that easy too. There's a few easy steps to success, right? If you choose to deploy this on your own, um, you can get simple um, deployment steps. We have professional services, um, but there's only a few things that needs to happen. You need to provision you know, Prisma Access down onto the devices. You need to create a service connection or an IPsec tunnel um, from the data center up to the point of presence. You plug in Panorama, which if you're already using a Palo Alto Networks firewall, um, you probably already have Panorama, but if you don't, you just get a copy of Panorama and you manage all of these devices and set your policy. Um, or you can push templates um, you know, that we have pre-built. I mentioned those iron skillets as we call them. And um, get the clients out to the machines and you are off to the races. And so we've had many, many schools that have done this um, you know, in a week and under a week. Um, and it's a very efficient process to get it done. And the important part of it is that it you know, acknowledges efficiency. I mentioned at the beginning the important role that efficiency plays in all of this. 
So one last thing I'll mention, and then um, hopefully we'll get some questions. I'll remind you again of the Q&A box. Um, but um, the last thing I wanted to show uh, before we do our last poll um, is that there's plenty of resources to learn more. Um, so most of the content that I've shared today, there's a fuller and more robust set of data um, around these top five threats. And so you'll get these slides, I believe, and you can have this link. Um, and uh, you can read all about the details. You can get footnotes to the research behind it and everything else. We also have a, a very good document on exceeding CIPA compliance. I mentioned the importance of exceeding it and not just meeting the bare minimum. Um, and so this document talks about how you bridge from a foundation of robust URL filtering into all of the other threat prevention techniques that make you um, much more uh, responsible um, to the important task of securing our students from these top five threats. And some of you might be hands-on kind of people. You might be sitting there saying, oh, all right, I'm done listening to this guy. I want to try it. I want to put my hands on it. It can't be as easy as he says. So there's an opportunity for you to get your hands on it. And uh, it's on June 4th. And uh, we call it a UTD, which is fancy code word for ultimate test drive. Everything in tech has to have an acronym, right? So that's a UTD, an ultimate test drive. It's actually a UVTD these days. It's an ultimate virtual test drive. So it's now a four-letter acronym. But you can participate in this and learn how to accommodate these things um, in your environment and see how simple it is. All right. And then we did get another question about registering for the June 4th UTD. Um, that I will also include a link to register for that along with the recording for today's webinar in the follow-up email that will follow uh, this presentation. Um, if there are no more questions, I would like to thank all of our participants for joining us today for the webinar, The Future of Cybersecure Schools, Handling Threats to K-12 Online Student Safety, Data, and Compliance. We hope you found this webcast informative and helpful to, your to you and your organization. I would like to briefly mention some information on Kerasoft. We are a government IT solutions provider delivering industry-leading technology products, services, and training to federal, state, local, and education customers on behalf of top two manufacturers like uh, Palo Alto Networks, AWS, Splunk, Adobe, and VMware. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information on how Kerasoft or Palo Alto Networks can assist your educational institution, please visit www.kerasoft.com or email us at paloaltonetworks at kerasoft.com. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.